This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Kids, if you're going to class, you are dismissed. go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we come again to a time in your word, I pray that you would show us your glory, show us your power. As we just sang, Lord, remind those who have come today weeping of the joy that we have in you the freedom and the grace and the mercy and the hope that we have in you. Father, cement that truth in our hearts so that we may again go back out and spread that gospel, the good news of your salvation. Father, all of this is only given to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ, so it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to continue our series through the Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 126. If you want to start heading there in your Bible, Psalm 126. While you're turning there, I was thinking this week about how interesting it is that there are so many different experiences going on simultaneously in this body. It's the ebb and flow of life as it moves through our church, the different seasons happening simultaneously. For example, as many of you know, Kim and Tony are currently in Illinois because his father, whom he was very close to, has recently passed away. However, at the same time, some of you are experiencing new life. Maybe a new baby in the family or a healing from some illness. Or some of you are experiencing a renewed passion or unity or intimacy in your marriage. While at the same time, some of you are struggling to speak to each other. Some of you are joyfully watching your children grow into the men and women God wants them to be while some of you are wondering where things went so wrong. As you watch your kids reject you, and worse, the Lord. In other words, life is taking place in this body of believers. The ups and the downs, the seasons of which our existence is made... But a question I have is, how do we reconcile the ups with the downs? For people who supposedly, their lives have been redeemed by the Lord. How do we reconcile the joy with the sorrow in people's lives who have supposedly been made new in Christ? How do we remain faithful When the washing machine of life seems to have been permanently set to the 
joy-sorrow cycle? Well, that's a question the psalmist is going to answer this morning. Because he wants us to remember that the Lord's past restoration proves he will restore our sorrows to joy. He wants each and every one of us to remember that the Lord's past restoration proves that he will once again restore all our sorrow to joy. And the way we're going to see this is simply by walking through that statement in its two halves like it's broken up in this psalm. Verses 1 through 3 is the Lord's past restoration, and verses 4 through 6 proves He will restore our sorrows to joy. So first, let's look at verses 1 through 3 at the Lord's past restoration. Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now, verse 1 is translated several different ways because there's a word in there that's kind of vague. It's the word translated as fortunes or captives, or your Bible might even say well-being. So some of your translations are going to say something like when the Lord brought the captives back, which has led some scholars to believe that the psalmist is speaking of the return of the Israelites from the Babylonian exile when Darius and the other Persian kings let them return. Some of your translations might even say when the Lord restored the well-being of Zion. The point is, is it doesn't really matter what the psalmist is referring to. It doesn't matter what event he's referring to. He could be referring to the exodus. He could be referring to the exile. He could be referring to some event we don't even know about. The point is that whenever the Lord did whatever he did, it was so incredible. It was so unbelievable. The psalmist says it was like we were living in a dream. It reminds me of something like when you watch a movie and there's that montage that looks back at all the happy moments in the character's history. There's a scene of a, maybe a man and a woman running through the rain laughing together. And then it flashes to the next scene where there's a, a man and a woman dancing intimately in the kitchen. And then it flashes to another scene where there's kids running through the backyard playing in the sprinklers. Something like that. But whatever the Lord did, the psalmist says in verse 2, it was so incredible that even other people were saying, man, the Lord has done incredible things for them. How about you? Can you remember a time like that in your life? If someone was to make a montage of, of past joy in your life, what scenes would it include? Those scenes where everyone else would be jealous of what you had at that moment. I'd say for my montage, it would include the first morning after our wedding when I woke up and I was so excited that I had nothing else to do for the next several days but spend time with Shannon. Or after she had, we, she, we were at the doctor's office and she, had already, she was pregnant and had already been told that she could not have any more babies, but the doctor said, it's a boy. 
or any number of times throughout the years where I would fake like I was asleep and the kids would run and jump on me and how they would squeal and laugh when I flipped them over and tickled them. Can you remember those times in your life? Those times where others would look at you and say, wow, the Lord has done great things. Because as magnificent as those times are, I remember other times that were better. I remember when I was young one day walking out and looking up to the sky and being so filled with excitement just out of the blue, realizing that one day I was going to do that when the Lord came back. I can remember more than a few times sitting in my office preparing a message for a Sunday when the Lord just randomly would drop the full weight of what Christ has done for me onto my heart. I couldn't even do anything but just sit there. In other words, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but when I think about this psalm, the best time of my life was about 2,000 years ago. When the Lord redeemed this captive from, from the chains of sin and death. When he restored me to himself. The day when, when my Savior sat down in heaven to await my arrival. How about you? How good was that day for you? Some of you remember it. That day when the Lord changed you and made you new. Surely that was one of the days that would go into your montage. If it's not, there have been other days where the Lord has laid on, on your heart. Those times when, when you were so close to him. How good were those days for you? Because brothers and sisters, that's the Lord's greatest past restoration. But here's the thing. You see, I have other memories as well. I can remember days when Shannon and I could not stop yelling at each other. I remember days when my children said they hated me. In fact, the days when some of our children turned their backs on the Lord are not yet memories. And I know many of you can remember days like that as well. In fact, just like us, for some of you, those days are also not yet memories. So what are we supposed to do with this? Are those days of laughter and joy simply destined to be short-lived and relegated to the land of memory? Or is there a reason for us to hope that the Lord will again restore us to joy? Where the Lord will again put laughter in our mouths and it'll stay there. Well, the psalmist thinks so. Listen to what he says in verses 4 through 6. He says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. Now, 
I want you to notice two things about those verses. First, I want you to notice that the psalmist is pleading with the Lord to restore them again. Meaning, just like us, something has changed between verse 3 and verse 4. Look again at the language he uses in verse 5 and 6 to describe where they are now. He says, tears and weeping. Whatever has happened, the joy and laughter of verse 3 has been replaced with anguish and sorrow. It's over now. The dream he was living has turned now into a nightmare. But second... Even so, even in the midst of that anguish and that sorrow, notice how sure the psalmist is that the Lord is going to answer his prayer. He prays for the Lord to restore them in verse 4. But then look what he says in verse 5. Look at the language he uses. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, verse 6, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So how can he be so certain that the Lord is going to do this? It's like one little line of prayer, and then he starts naming things that the Lord is going to do. Well, the whole point of this psalm is that he's already given us the answer in verses 1 through 3. In other words, the Lord's past restoration, His work that He's done in the past, it proves, it ensures, it tells us that He will restore our sorrows to joy. Because our God has always been a God who turns heartache and sorrow into joy and laughter. That's who He is. That's how He rolls. Think about the day Joseph was sold into slavery. What a dark day that was. But God restored both him and his family together. Think about that day when Moses' mother set him in the, in the river, maybe never to see him again, while in the background she hears other babies being slaughtered. Yet God used that moment to set Moses up to lead his people out of Egypt. Or think about the night that the door shut behind Daniel in the lion's den. Yet God used that to put on display His power and authority so clearly that the king of Persia was like, yep, he's God. King of Babylon, I mean. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's Sarah and Hannah and Naomi and Ruth. There's Job and Hezekiah and Mordecai, and the list goes on and on and on. Our God is characterized by restoring tears to joy. Or picture the heartache and the fear and the grief that Peter experienced that night he denied Jesus three times before he locked eyes with him. Seeing Jesus and knowing he knows that you just wanted nothing to do with him. At the moment he needed you the most. The Bible says in, in Matthew 26 that after that, Peter wept bitterly. And that was just the beginning of his pain and sorrow. 
Think of the anguish of Jesus' mother, Mary, as she stood there and watched her son suffocate on a cross, unable to do anything about it. Think of the absolute loss and heartache of a woman like Mary Magdalene who sat there and watched the only man who ever saw her for who she could be instead of who she was. Just die. Gone. All these people wept for days as their entire lives, everything they had put their hope in in was, was carried into the grave with Jesus. They didn't know what we know. And three days later, when Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early in the morning to finish the burial process, John chapter 20 says that she stood at the entrance of the tomb still weeping because she thought someone had come and stolen Jesus' body. Listen to what John says happened. John says that as she stood there, confused and sobbing, a man came up to her and said, Woman, why are you weeping? And we can tell from the context that, that she had her back turned to him. So she thought he was the gardener. So she asked him, Sir, if, if you have moved his body, please tell me where it is so that I can go get it. Through the, the weeping and the tears. But then one of my favorite Bible verses in, in the whole of Scripture. It turns out that that man was Jesus. And as she stood there, distraught, And weeping, he simply said, Mary. Mary. Picture the look on her face as John says she turned around. Imagine the joy in her heart. The Bible says she shouted, teacher. And ran up and hugged him so tight and so long that Jesus literally said, like, Mary. Mary, you're going to have to let me go. i got to go tell the disciples what happened. And Luke chapter 24 tells us that when he did appear to the rest of the disciples, that they thought he was a ghost. So he showed them his hands and his feet and asked for something to eat. I guess paying for the sins of the world probably takes it out of you. But Luke 24 says, as the disciples sat there watching Jesus eat fish, it says, they disbelieved for joy. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like they thought they were dreaming. And brothers and sisters, that day is going to happen again. A day when we too, disbelieving for joy, will have a meal with our Savior. Because the Lord's past restoration proves He will restore our sorrows to joy Once again, he will restore our sorrows to joy once again. But why does he do it this way? Why does he redeem people and then leave them to this this never-ending cycle of joy and then heartache and joy and then heartache? Well, the simple answer is because there are others. 
The Bible tells us that there are others whose mouths he wants to fill with laughter. There are others he wants to experience the day when their mourning is turned to joy. In fact, maybe this morning you are one of those people. Maybe you're one of those people whose mouth God wants to fill with the joy and laughter of salvation. I would ask you, can you hear Him calling you to joy, to freedom, to hope, and to peace? Can you hear Him calling you to restoration and to mercy? Because listen, just like Mary, He's calling your name. And it's not too late to have your mouth filled by your Lord and Savior with the joy and laughter of restoration. Which leads me to the, to the last thing this psalmist says that we can overlook if we're not careful. Because the other reason God doesn't immediately remove us from this cycle is that He has decided to use us in that plan. He's decided to use you and I to usher other people into heaven. You're all standing there like that's not crazy. That's nuts. A sovereign God who created the universe would be like, yeah, you guys, I'm going to use you to do this. That's like me giving my three-year-old a hammer and asking him to build our house. Look at what the psalmist says they're doing through the tears and the weeping in verse 5 and 6. He says in verse 5 that those who sow in tears. And in verse 6 he says those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. Brothers and sisters, we have been given a clear and marvelous mandate. In fact, it's the very last thing that Jesus ever said to us before he went back to heaven. Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. For I am with you always. Brothers and sisters, on that day when your sorrow and heartache is turned permanently to laughter and joy, what harvest will you bring with you? What sheaves will you be carrying into heaven? Because I can tell you this, it ain't going to be your bank account. It ain't going to be your stuff. It ain't going to be your house. That ain't going to be your, your harvest. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, They shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing whose sheaves? His sheaves with him. Listen, the seed we have is the seed of the gospel. It's that seed of the good news that's, that Jesus spoke about in the parable of the sower. And our primary calling on this earth is not to make a living. It's not to accumulate or maintain stuff. Uh, listen, our primary calling on this earth is not even your kids. All those things have value. Yes, all those things are important. 
if they're put in the right order. Because our primary purpose on this earth is to sow the seed of the gospel that is reaped in souls that are restored. To cast the seed on anyone who will listen, and even those who don't, that there is a God who wants to restore their, their, their sorrow and sin and failure to joy and laughter. The good news that, that all they have to do is, is believe that Jesus Christ died, rose from the dead, and is coming back again for them. Bang. Laughter and joy. That's it. That's the seed we have to scatter. Our jobs are only intended to provide us the means to do that task. Our homes are, are only intended to be a place where we can rest from that task. Our kids are just our replacements that we're training up for that task. In fact, the very next psalm calls them arrows in a parent's quiver, not trophies on their mantle. But we all know, some more than others at this very moment, that that charge, that that task, that that calling is very rarely easy. Just like the psalmist expresses, it's almost like if you're doing it right, it is filled with sorrow and tears. So what do you do? What do you do when you've cried so much that, that your soul feels dry? What do you do when you have no more tears to weep? What do you do when you can't speak through the sobbing? Brothers and sisters, remember the Lord's past restoration. That's what you do. Remember the Lord's past restoration. Remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. When weeping seems to have overcome your life, remember the laughter of the disciples as they sat there watching their Lord eat fish like He wasn't dead three days ago. When you can't stop the tears, remember the joy of someone like, like Jesus' mother Mary as her son held her in her arms again just like she had held his lifeless body a few days ago. Remember the joy of Mary Magdalene when her Savior said to her, Mary. Because that past restoration proves without a doubt that He will once again perfectly and permanently restore all of our sorrows to joy. It proves that there will come a day when you will walk into the Lord's presence weighed down by sheaves of His harvest. A day when you will walk into His throne room loaded up with souls that He has won through you. It's a harvest that testifies to His trustworthiness. It's, it's a, it's a, they're sheaves that glorify His greatness, that magnify His majesty. 
So listen, if, if this morning, even if, if your eyes are still wet with tears, if this morning your heart is still heavy with grief, or in the future, if, it, if you get to that point, remember that the Lord's past restoration proves He will restore you again. Because you can bank on the life of Jesus Christ. You can bank on the resurrection of the Son of God that He will restore your sorrow to laughter and your weeping to joy. That is a certainty that trumps pain. It is an inevitability that buoys heartache. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that one day you shall go home with shouts of joy. Lord, you have been faithful through every storm. You'll be faithful forevermore because you have done great things. And I know you will do it again for your promise is yes and amen. You will do great things, God. You do great things. O hero of heaven, you conquered the grave. You free every captive and break every chain. O God, you have done great things. Together, please stand and let's remember those great things.